Welcome to the Bookwifery Podcast, a weekly podcast that helps you birth your book, your voice, and your audience through discernment, companionship, and guidance. I'm Christiane Squires, the founder of Bookwifery, and my mission is to help you birth books that heal the world with light. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bookwifery Podcast. I'm super glad to have you here. Thanks for spending some time with me today. I am going to talk today with you about your ideal secondary and antagonistic readers. It's a little bit of a mouthful. I'll just own that right here from the start. But um, I kind of got inspired to, to talk about this today because of some conversations I've been having in my first trimester course with my students. Um, we just finished in one of the cohorts, we just finished the module on voice and are moving into the, uh, the module on audience. And this is kind of where this conversation kind of swirls around um, as you're thinking about who you are ultimately writing for and who you are doing the work in the world that you do for. And there are these different categories of audiences slash readers that come along and in the process that um, kind of peek their head over the fence and or that you go out to seek yourself. And um, if we, it, I find it helpful to have clarity about these kind of different categories of potential readers or potential audiences so that you can just be aware that they're all there and so that you can also kind of recenter yourself in kind of your approach so that you're always speaking to the audience and the reader that matters the most. So there's three kinds of readers we're going to cover today. There's your ideal reader, there are secondary readers, and there are antagonistic readers. So let's unpack all three of those and what you can do for each and why they matter. Okay, so first category is your ideal reader. So this is the category of reader that matters the most. It's the really the only one that matters. Um, and we're going to get into the secondary and antagonistic readers shortly and kind of explore why they do matter, but why they ultimately don't matter as much as the ideal reader. But this is really where I want you to camp out most of your time is with your ideal reader. This is the only audience that truly matters to what it is that you're doing with both your book and your ultimate ultimate work in the world. Um, and I'll also just say it's very easy to get um, tripped up or confused or a little bit off track, just slightly off track when you aren't clear on the difference between your ideal reader and your secondary readers. So that's why I think it's really helpful for us to unpack this today. So your ideal reader, when you are clear on who that person is, you are able to stay in your particular zone of genius. You are able to be kind of locked in and laser focused on what you feel that you are ultimately here to do, who you are here to help. So your ideal reader is the per and your ideal audience, even beyond your book, but when you're doing things out in the world and connecting with the people that your book is for, um, or that your work is ultimately for, this is your ideal audience. This is, these are the group of people who you're ultimately here to serve, the people that you feel the most conviction to spend your life in service of, the people that you... Um, that that it's like if if you were to publish your book and and get um, like a letter or an email from from one of them that says like this is how your book helped me with the problem that I have um, that you would just feel like it was all worth it so 
A couple things I want to encourage you to do as you are trying to think about your ideal reader and uh, figure out ways in which to approach them both on the page or in your planning for your book or out in the wild when you're doing different efforts on behalf of cultivating your audience and getting in touch with your ideal uh, readers and audience. So the first thing I do is just to invite you um, to to ask, you know, can you picture an actual person? When you think about the work that you are doing in the world that is kind of crystallizing itself into this book project that's ahead of you, can you picture an actual person that you know in your life, either right now or someone in your past, someone that you've met even just briefly, um, or someone that you've had long-term relationship with that you think this is who this is really about, like this is the person, the kind of person I'm ultimately trying to help. Is there someone that you can picture in your mind and say, if I could write this directly to them? I would. And I would, I would just encourage you as a side note to go ahead and do that. So if you can um, picture an actual person that just allows you again, to get that laser locked focus on who this work is for. So you're, you know, what you'll want to do when you think about that person is say like, start to unpack that a bit and say, what is it about them? That makes me, makes them the kind of person that I'm identifying and saying like, this is who I would love to be writing this for, or this is who I am ultimately trying to serve in the world. Why is it them? What is it about them that makes you unlock inside of yourself a feeling of compassion or service or a desire to help or come alongside? What is it about them? You know, what is it that they're facing? What are they dealing with? What are they getting stuck inside? And so as you kind of identify some of these like um, characteristics or features or, um, oh, um, I keep coming back to the word category. <laughs> I know I kind of overuse that word in this podcast sometimes. Um, but yeah, these different kind of pieces of what it is that they're doing in their life that makes them a symbol for you of what you are energized to be to, to be offering them. So first thing is to visualize the actual person that you know in your life or that you've met somewhere or that you can imagine existing and then start to unpack what it is about them that is actually drawing you to identify them as your ideal person. What is it about their situation, their struggles, their desires, their longings, their fears, their wants, um, their dreams? Like what is it about them that makes them your ideal person? And so what you're going to do, what I encourage my students to do, and I'm going to encourage you to do is to make that person or that kind of conglomeration of people. If there's several that you can identify, it's okay to have more than one, but for you to be clear on like, what is it that ties all those people together? Um, that, that makes you feel that kind of rising up um, motivation to take action on their behalf or to move toward them and to serve in some way. Um, so what I'm going to encourage you to do is to keep them at the forefront of your mind in everything that you do. So when you are writing a chapter for your book, when you are writing a caption on Instagram, when you are writing an email to your newsletter list, when you are creating some kind of workshop or a course offering that you are keeping that person or small group of persons in mind for everything that you do. And, and when you write those things or you speak those things, you're actually talking to them. 
And you've, you know, this may be an idea that you're familiar with. It may not be new, but if it is new for you um, and you're saying like, why? <laughs> the, the reason that you do this is because the specific is the universal. When you talk to a specific person in something as simple as an Instagram caption, the way that that translates for the people on the other side of their phone screens that are reading that caption, even if they are not the person you are writing to, it, it communicates a sense of intimacy and knowing, like a, a almost more conversation than if you were to be trying to just write a caption for this kind of faceless mass of people that you know are out there. <laughs> and so if you write to a specific person, it it's like it's almost like people it doesn't matter if the other people on the other side of the screen receiving that caption are the person you had in mind. They will feel like you are talking directly to them. There's just this kind of really special thing that happens that the specific um, way that you talk to one person becomes universally connecting to other people. And this is, I'll just say, this is the way that I approach what I do in my email newsletters, in the courses that I write, in the captions I write on Instagram. I am always having someone in mind that I am writing that to. It's it's like I'm the, the people that I work with, particularly my students, tend to be the springboard of inspiration for me. And the things that they ask, the things that they're struggling with become the, the takeoff that I have for what I want to talk about in these different thing, places that I communicate with my audience. And so even in, in kind of sketching out this this podcast episode, I have um, a, a, some people in mind that I am thinking, I know that this is something that they're struggling with, and I have them in mind as I am talking about this. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, by talking to them, that kind of creates a sense of like you feeling folded in, even if you're not one of those people I have in my mind, because we don't know each other, and I don't know specifically what you're struggling with, um, that, that as you're listening to this, you feel like, that maybe I'm kind of reaching into your heart and talking to you too. So the specific becomes the universal. It's like there's something about writing to or talking to a specific person in our mind, in our mind's eye, that kind of brings down the defenses or the walls that come up or the um, even just the posturing that can start to kind of you know slope itself on our shoulders. Um, um, when we approach the need to to do some work in our in our writing endeavor or our, our book project or cultivating our audience, it's like um, as soon as we think about the fact that we're going to be going and doing that thing, I'm going to sit down today and I'm going to work on my book chapter, um, or I'm going to sit sit on my couch right now and work on my Facebook or Instagram post for the day. Um, it's like as soon as we think about that thing that we need to do, it's very easy for us to like immediately like put on this cloak of like, I am in doing mode and I need to do the thing and I need to do it well. And it's like, we start to lose sight of like who we're doing it for. We're become, become more focused on the task or become more focused on ourselves and like what we should say and how we should say it. Instead of when we have a particular person in mind that we are inspired to write for, then it becomes like easy. It's like, oh, I'm just writing to this person and I'm just telling them what I know they need to know. I'm just telling them the thing that I can see they're struggling with and that I can give them some insight into how to work on that thing. And so it just, there's something about shifting it to a specific person that takes down that, there's like this thin 
sheer veil that goes up as soon as we focus less on a person and more on a a massive a mass of people that are faceless and nameless or when we start focusing on the thing that we need to do in all capital letters um, or when we start focusing on ourselves and whether we have what it takes to do it it's like as soon as we start focusing on any of those other things there's this like curtain or something that goes up that that makes our communication just a little bit more removed from people, um, a little bit more um, boxy and, and stilted versus as soon as we're just writing directly to a person that we have in mind, something comes down, like that barrier between us and our people comes down and we just sound like ourselves. And we also there's like a sense of intimacy or connection. There's like a spark that's created between us and our audience because we're just, we're again, we're just being ourselves and we're talking as though we would talk to a real person that we actually have in mind. So there's something about having an ideal reader in mind or an ideal audience member in mind that if we keep them at the forefront, helps us connect even more to all the other readers and audience members that would come along. And the thing too is that while having that specific person in mind and knowing what it is that makes them your specific person, it just it allows you to connect more broadly with the other people that have those same characteristics. So the same struggles, the same um, fears, the same um, uh, dreams, the same problems, the things that you're wanting to help your ideal person that you have in mind with. There are so many other people that are in that same category of need or um, struggle or interest that that you are that, that that when they find you, they're like, oh my gosh, it's like she's inside my head. It's like she knows exactly what I'm dealing with, and it's because you've done the work of identifying the exact kind of person that's right for the work that you're doing in your book or in your work in the world, and you're able to um, not just connect on behalf of that person, but everyone else who is like that person who needs that same kind of support and guidance that you have to bring. So when you are working from this posture, you become focused on living from a place of service. You become someone who is motivated by a sense of compassion or empathy. Um, you become more focused on being helpful because you have this specific person or people or small group of people in mind that you can continuously look at and say, okay, what is it that they're struggling with right now? Or what can I imagine that they're struggling with right now? How can I be helpful to them? And that ends up generating a lot of ideas for you. So ideas for the book, ideas for what you might want to do to connect with your audience in some, you know, concrete ways, um, ideas for posts or series or, um, and, and there, then you also become thereby more effective because you are, you are operating from a place of service, empathy, compassion, helpfulness, and you're having all of these ideas of what that could look like. And you're starting to put those in motion. And therefore it is having effectiveness in the world. It's like, you're actually doing something that is, um, benefiting a group of people. You have, um, specific things that you are going out of your way to help them with. So, okay. So that is my little treatise on your ideal reader. They are the main thing. They are the only audience that truly matters. And so just want to encourage you to like continue to come back to that ideal reader and let yourself just spend as much time with them in your head and in your heart and in your work as you as you need to. 
had a really fun conversation with a student this last week who, you know, we spent a, one of her one-on-one sessions with me. We, we spent some time, you know, really trying to hone in on who it is that she's writing her book for. And we started, you know, as, as she would talk about the kind of woman that is her ideal reader, just the smile that came on her face, I could see that she got animated and activated. There was like this um, light coming out. She was like illuminated almost by talking about these different things that she knew about her ideal reader. And I was just, it was such a fun moment for me to say, do you realize how amazing it is that you get to now spend all your time when you're working on your book and when you're cultivating your audience, you get to spend all your time with that woman. Like the way that you are all lit up right now, thinking about her and identifying her different characteristics and what it is that she cares about. Like I can tell that you love her and you now get to spend all your time being with this person that you love in your heart and in your mind and in the things that you're doing on your on your book and with your audience it's like she gets to be the person that you are you know inspired by and thinking about and looking to help and it's like it's such an amazing thing to frame it that way because it's like and we're going to get to this in a minute when we talk about secondary audiences and antagonistic audiences um it's so easy for those other categories that we're going to unpack in a minute to become um, kind of like jost- they, they can start to jostle for our attention and we can start to get distracted or, or even we can get um, distracted by the idea that we need to do what we do for like to be palatable for everyone. And so it starts to just water down because if we're trying to do something for everyone, we're really trying to do something for no one because there's no way for everyone to fit into the same boxes. Like the, we cannot, we, <laughs> what we have to offer is not, is not ultimately able to be beneficial to everyone in the world. And so anyways, we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of the episode, but I just, I want to kind of plant that seed for you and say that by identifying your ideal reader, get in touch with that place of love inside of you that you have for that person and allow yourself to savor how wonderful it is that you get to really just focus on that person or that small group of people that you've identified as being symbolic of your ideal audience. And that like, you don't have to worry about anything else. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why you don't have to worry about any of these other readers or audiences. Okay. Secondary readers are, or secondary audience members are people who want to champion what you're about in the world. So I think this is the category of reader or slash audience that um, most easily gets confused with the ideal reader because they are a positive force in your world and in your circle. They are people that really care about what you're doing. They are they are champions of it. They are cheerleaders of it. They're super supportive of it and of you. And they want to spread the word about what you're doing and they want to use your materials and they want, you know, they find help from them in some way. We're going to unpack a little bit about how that is and, and why that is, but they are not ultimately your ideal reader. So let me give an example of this. Let's say that you are working on a book project that is going to help people who are spiritual but not religious um, find a way of connecting to the sacred in daily life, Um, finding ways to help them notice and name their own sense of the divine in their world. So these are people that may or may not attend church. 
may not affiliate, probably don't affiliate with any formalized religion or tradition, um, but they care a lot about spirit. They have a sense of connection to whatever they name as God. And you, in your work in the world, have a deep love for people in this category. And you fiercely champion them finding their ways of connecting to the sacred, to the holy. And so everything that you do in the book that you're writing, it's for them. And everything that you do in your audience cultivation efforts, whether it's how you set up your website, the language you use there, how you set up um, ways in which this community of people might find each other, ways that you talk about these kinds of things on your Instagram account, like all of it is in service for this group of people who would identify as deeply spiritual, but not religious. Okay, so that's your ideal reader kind of profile. Your secondary reader in this example might be a pastor at a church in North Carolina who has a deep passion for the church to kind of open its doors and become more welcoming and to be careful about the language that they use for God and whether they use gendered language for God or not and how welcoming they are to people in marginalized um communities and and groups and um, kind of demographics in in the community and in the church. Um, And this this pastor is like fierce about it in his or her denomination, is willing to go to bat for those, you know, to to see their denomination or their church make a difference in this way. So that pastor is not your pri- is not your primary audience because everything that you're doing with your boots on the ground and all the work that you're doing on your your book and in your audience cultivation efforts is for the person who actually is in that audience you know that is like trying to find their own sense of spirituality but this pastor in North Carolina that I've just made up in my mind <laughs> What might find your work and be like, yes, 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 this author, she knows exactly what this is about. She is like doing it and she's all about it. And what she's doing in her in her work with her audience is beautiful. And like this pastor will start following the heck out of you and probably reach out to you and say, you know, I love what you're doing and you're encouraging me so much. And I feel like reading your work is helping bolster my own sense of my mission in the world with my church and with my denomination and the things I'm doing in my community. And uh, is there a way that we might collaborate on something somehow? So this pastor is a secondary reader for you. He is not, he or she is not the reason that you are doing your work in the world, but they, he, 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 let's just say it's a he. (laughs) That's what I was imagining when I first, when I first made him up. Um, He is like someone shoulder to shoulder with you in the work in the world and kind of like a colleague at this point. Um, Someone you are also helping because, you know, we talk about general nonfiction books being books that help people. So your work in the world is helping him because it's encouraging him, but it's kind of in a sideways way. Like he's reading your work that you are writing to this group of people that are needing to find their own access to God. And this pastor over here already has his way of doing that. He already he doesn't need to be helped to find God. He doesn't need to be helped to find language for God or practices or community that would help support him in his, you know, search for and um, connection with the divine. 
but he's being encouraged by what he sees you doing. So he's a secondary reader, and and the chances are that there will be a lot of people you encounter in the work that you're doing that would be that would fall into this category of secondary reader. It's like someone who really champions what you're doing in the world and feels sometimes because they personally have a sense of mission in their own life that is very closely aligned with what you're doing. Or it might be that um, they they just are supportive of what you stand for and what you're doing, and they are willing to like you know, they'll, they'll buy your books. They'll, um, they'll spread the word about the things that you're doing. They'll like freely share with their networks, the, the things that you're about. Um, and it's like, when that happens, it's so encouraging for you as the author, um, because you feel less alone in the work that you're doing. You feel a sense of shared light, right? It's like, it's almost like your candles, your, your own lanterns, your light that you have inside of you is like coming up next to these other people who have their light that are, you know, caring about similar things. And it makes the light even brighter when you collectively gather, um, and then the, another kind of group that might fall into the secondary readers here is is just even people in your life that just love you and support you and will shout from the rooftops what you're doing. When your book comes out, it's like they're telling all of their Facebook friends about your book. And they may not be your audience. Like they are just doing it because they love you and they're proud of you and they support you. And so here's what I want to say about this. Like your secondary readers are a major force for good on behalf of the light that you're bringing into the world. They're helping to further it. They're helping to fan the flames of it. Um, they are helping encourage your own spirit in your own work. And I'm sure like that goes both ways, right? It's like you're encouraging their spirit, this pastor, his spirit is being so encouraged by you. But the fact that he is super supportive of what you're doing and and wanting to come alongside it in some, ha- in some different ways, you know, encourages your spirit as well. Um, and so this, this secondary reader group can be pretty large and multiply there's like a multiplying factor because as they get excited about what you're doing and they're sharing it with their networks it's like you, your um ability to grow in visibility is there um but here's what i want to say about them they are responding to the importance of you continuing to stay focused laser locked honed in on your ideal person, your ideal group, your ideal readers. So if you weren't doing what you are out there doing in the world on behalf of your ideal readers, if you are not focused on who they are and motivated by love and, 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 you know, a desire to serve and help the group that you are called to like do your work on behalf of in the world, then these other people in the secondary category, secondary reader group, wouldn't have anything to be excited about. <laughs> they wouldn't even know. Um, it's like your paths would never even cross because that pastor got excited about what you're actually doing for your ideal reader. That's what he's responding to. And he's feeling a sense of affiliation with. And your friends in your life that are like shouting from the rooftop, the fact that your book just got published, they're doing that because they're proud of the way that you are leaning into your unique call, your unique work, and you're doing the thing on behalf of your people that you're here to serve. And so your friends and your family that are championing you too are doing it because they're lit up by the fact that you're doing what you're supposed to, what you're meant to be doing in the world, not supposed to be. Sorry, that was a slip of the tongue. But um so I hope you see that that like the secondary readers are super 
powerful and good and needed, and they're helpful to you on many different levels, but they're ultimately dependent upon and responding to the fact that your ideal readers exist and that you are you are first and foremost serving them. Okay, so here's how with when it comes to your secondary readers, they are still in service to your ideal readers being the main thing for you. Okay. I'm getting all excited over here. <laughs> you should see me as I'm recording this episode for you. It's like my hands are like waving in the air as I'm talking, and I hope I'm sure you can hear in my voice how passionate I can get about this. Okay, so let's move into the third category: your antagonistic readers. Mm. <laughs> even writing that down, I was like, oh, I hate even acknowledging them because it's such a hard word to and a, and a hard truth to acknowledge that there can be antagonistic readers. So. There's two ways this can look, um, and I'm totally simplifying this, but I think the two ways is helpful to kind of break it down. There's the mental antagonistic reader that's like the critic in your head, the one that's sitting on your shoulder, the one that's inside your phone screen. It's all of the, the, the anticipatory antagonism that you have when you are sitting down to write or you are sitting down to put something out into the world on behalf of your audience. Um, it's like the mental potential of antagonism that you are imagining could happen. And you might have specific people in your mind that you're imagining when you are sitting down and doing those things. Um, and then there's like the real lived antagonistic readers. Okay. So we're going to talk about both of those. There is the mental that you are anticipating. So these are the, these are the antagonistic readers that live in your head that may be based on past experience, things that happened, you know, in fourth grade, or um, people that you know online that tend to be super div- divisive, or um, you know they disagree with your philosophy about something, or they don't care about the work that you're doing, or they think it's just dumb <laughs> for whatever reason. You just, it's like you have this awareness of people in the world who have a negative reaction to you or what you're about. So they could be people that you actually know and have a difficult relationship with or have had in the past, or they could be like groups of people that you know disagree with the kind of work that you're doing in the world. And again, it becomes kind of this nameless, faceless blob (laughs) of awareness that you have. And they take up these, all of these people and the mental antagonistic reader takes up room inside your head. They're, like I said, it's the critic in your head. It's the one that's sitting on your shoulder when you sit down to write. It's the one that's inside your phone screen when you go to visit your different apps. And you have this mental awareness of them. And knowing that they're there can often freeze you up. It can block you. It can, keep, it can make you afraid to sit down and do the work. It can cause you to back away from it. It can cause you to start feeling like defensive and guarded up. Um, it's and and it just it causes you to just kind of shrink. So what I want to say about these antagonistic readers that are in your head is that they take your eye off the ball, and they're there, and we all deal with them. Um, but when they start to creep in and they start to play their you know, tapes in our head, they distract us from the work. They get us, like I said, playing on defense. And I'm really like using these sports metaphors and I am not a sporty person at all. I am not a sporty spice. Um, but what they're doing is um, 
they're 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 powerful in their own way because they can cause us to lose sight of our mission because we get afraid or intimidated or insecure or um, yeah, it's like we're anticipating rejection or ridicule or derision. And so we like shrink in order to protect ourselves. But in doing that, we become disconnected from our actual mission and the thing that actually powers us up and motivates us and, and, and invites us to move toward others. So, um, so I just want to name the reality of the antagonistic reader and my argument for why they do not matter is because they keep you from the work. They, they, like I said, they get your eye off the ball. They cause you to lose sight of your mission. They take you away from the work when, when those mental antagonistic readers get involved. And so they need to not matter because what does matter is the light that you're here to bear and the people that you are here to bear it for. Okay, so that's the mental, and we will probably do some work in future podcast episodes on some of that inner critic stuff, but I just wanted to name that that's one category of the antagonistic reader that exists, and they they usually are existing even as you're working. I mean, it's, these are the ones that exist before your book is ever in the world. They're the ones that actually are doing their work on you when you are even just trying to get your book born, and so they can they can slow you down from making progress on the thing. But then there are those antagonistic readers that actually exist in the real world. And these are the ones that may have a problem with whatever premise your book has. They may be the ones that go on Amazon and give you a one-star review. They may be the ones that write an article for a media outlet that um, mocks what you have to say or what it is that you're trying to do or what arguments you're trying to bring into the conversation on behalf of your people and your ideal readers. Um, these are going to be the people who actually are antagonistic to what you do in the world. And it's possible you may encounter this at some point. And I want to just say to you, these are not your people. And if, okay, there's a couple different ways you can look at this. Um, one is, you know, if someone if someone disses your book after it's in the world and they write a one-star review or a two-star review or whatever, um, and you read the review or you have a friend, a loved one, read it for you, and you discover that they misunderstood what you were trying to do, um, they totally missed the point or they misrepresented what you said, um, I think that that's unfortunate. It's a lost opportunity for them to have misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, but what it ultimately tells you is that what they are saying is actually founded on untruth. It's, it's, if it's misrepresented, mischaracterized, misunderstood, it's not real what they're saying. It's, it's completely based on a different premise than what you intended. Um, alternatively, if they write something and they legitimately get what you're trying to say, or at least to the extent that they can, and they're putting it out there and you're like, oh my gosh, like they have made a case, maybe a legitimate case or, or, or a case that warrants some consideration against everything that you stand for, <laughs> which is hard. And I just want to name that. Um, this is, this is what it does. Number one, it causes you to clarify where you stand. So if someone brings a case against what you're doing in the world and they have some good points, it allows you to continue to wrestle with the place from the, the, the ground upon which you stand. It causes you to say, okay, there's something in what they're saying 
that I need to listen to and think about. And then you can incorporate the way that you thought about that or struggled with that into the continued work that you do. So you might offer a counter article to respond to some of the critiques. And maybe in your counter article, you can find some common ground and there might be a way to mend a bridge that was burned in their fierce attack. So that's one thing. Another thing that their um, counter argument to you uh, in the real world that might have some like some some something undergirding it that that actually has substance is that it raises the profile of the conversation. It raises so it raises the conversation. It allows there to be more than one voice, you know, or additional voices at the table of the conversation space. It allows a group of people to start thinking again about this. It also raises the profile of you and your book. So there's actually some like, like kind of coming in the back door way in which the negative press can, can also shine a light on more of what you're doing and allow more people to even know about it. So that's one positive thing. But here's here's my here's my take on this. Um, each time it happens needs to be taken as it happens. There's no way to like fully armor up and like anticipate any possible negative outcome. And if you were to spend time doing that again, it goes back to that. It takes your eye off the ball. Um it could cause you to freeze up. It could cause you to have that that barrier between you and your actual real audience that you're here to serve because you're worried about your words getting taken out of context or um, yourself your, or your ideas being attacked somehow. Like there has to be some work done. And again, maybe we'll spend some more time on this in, in future episodes. Um, kind of being aware that you become more exposed the more you put yourself out there on behalf of your audience and move toward writing a book or growing your audience, there is going to be exposure there. It's going to make you vulnerable. But I think um, what I want to encourage you toward is that you will gain strength and be fortified by continuing to focus on the people you're here to serve. So the other thing, one last thing I want to say about antagonistic readers is that for some people, and maybe you you will discover that this is this is you. For some people, their work in the world is to go on offense against their antagonistic readers. (laughs) These are going to be individuals in our world who who serve as prophets of a kind. Um, Prophets are those who come and speak truth to power. Who who are trying to bang on doors that need to be opened that are closed by those that are in power or that are the status quo, um, who want to bring an opposing view to something that is the norm or the standard or the assumed truth. And um, you may be among these people that your work in the world is to go on offense against those that are antagonizing those that need to be protected. And so you are going, you are wading into the fray knowingly and willingly into a life of antagonistic work. (laughs) Both you being antagonistic to the status quo or the power players and being in a life of friction. Like your work is, is almost like there's an identity piece in your work that is connected to this idea of friction, of bumping up against, of pushing up against, of, um, almost there's conflict because when you're trying to change 
some norms that require it's going to create conflict and challenge. And so, um, so going on offense against the antagonistic readers may be your actual call. And, but I just want, I want to name that because I think it's possible that, you know, some people listening to this podcast may have that, that their work is to go up against and, and respond to regularly the antagonistic readers that are on the other side of what they're doing. Um, for the majority, for the rest of us, um, the main thing is that life of service and directly facing those that we are here to help. And those prophets in our midst, I mean, those are also working on behalf of those who are in need of help or structures that are in need of dismantling. Um, but their focus is turned toward kind of the larger institutions or ideas that need to be dismantled so that the the following follow on action um, or the follow on realities can serve a group of people that need it. So their day to day work, their their books that they're writing aren't necessarily turned toward the people that that will help, that that work will help. Their work is ultimately turned toward that dismantling of structures and that speaking truth to power and that, um, um, you know, coming up against the arguments that need to be reframed. So. Okay, so we've shown here, too, that with your antagonistic readers, whether they are the mental ones in your head, that those anticipated ones, or the real ones in the world, ultimately, the job is to stay focused on your ideal reader and the work that you, need, you are here to do, to not be taken down by all of that potential antagonism or real antagonism, and to deal with the real if and when it happens, and that each case will be its own, and you will discern in that moment what your response needs to be, if any response is needed. So, ideal reader, secondary readers, antagonistic readers. Your ideal reader is the one. And going back to what I said earlier about the, the chance that you have to like Stay in that bubble of love that you have for your ideal reader to allow to basically spend all your time thinking about them, um, imagining them, um, finding ways to continue helping them that you, you know, having that that group of ideal readers or that that single one that you can even identify um, that really is gets to be your work that that kind of is distilled down what it is. Whether you're working on your book, whether you're clarifying your voice for them, whether you are seeking to reach them in your audience cultivation efforts, all of it is about knowing your ideal reader, being in touch with your care for them, your love for them, your desire to help and serve them, and going after that, getting after it. And so, yeah, let's just keep our focus where it's meant to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bookwifery podcast. Show notes for each episode can be found at bookwifery.com slash podcast. I'd love to connect with you beyond the show. You can subscribe to my birth notes newsletter at bookwifery.com slash notes, where I share further details behind each week's episode, plus updates on all things bookwifery. My favorite place to hang out online is Instagram. You can find me at Christiane underscore bookwifery or by searching bookwifery in the explore tab. 
And lastly, don't you just love this music? It's called Lights Dissolve and is produced by a musician named Elliot Middleton. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>